Bible here from Genesis chapter 14. We're going to read uh, part of the, an account which men mentions a particular man called Melchizedek. But we don't get to him till partway through the reading. Genesis 14, verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedolaoma, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shina, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought it back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolema and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise to be, be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And we're going to turn next into, uh, to the book of Hebrews. Uh, the passage that has been given out is Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 1 to 10, but I'll start a couple of verses earlier than that just to pick up uh, where it really begins. The chapter divisions in our Bibles are sometimes a little uh, misplaced, shall we say. And this really continues from last week where we heard from Dave uh, when he was preaching on uh, Jesus as our anchor uh, and the hope that is given. Uh, and we read in verse uh, 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother 
without genealogy, without the beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the uh, descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they're also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Well, good morning. It's nice to see you all. And I'd like to begin by thanking the church leadership here for uh, enabling me to come and share God's word with you. If we took a straw poll of the people, uh, of who people consider to be the most significant Old Testament characters, the forerunners might include Abraham, Moses, Ruth, David, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and so on. But what about Melchizedek? He's mentioned only in Genesis chapter 14. Once again, a thousand years later by King David in Psalm 110. And finally, several times in the New Testament letters to the Hebrews another thousand years later. Little is known about him. And yet he is very important. As the writer to the Hebrews states in chapter 6 and verse 20, he, that's Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that phrase, in the order of, means in the manner of, after the pattern of Melchizedek. Let's just remind ourselves of the background to this letter. The ancient Israelites used hundreds of priests drawn from the tribe of Levi to represent them before God. Their principal task was to offer regular sacrifices to God on behalf of the people for their sins. And additionally, it was the task of the high priest, the top priest, to enter the holiest place in the temple just once a year to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, which marked the very presence of the Lord. This was the only time that anyone was allowed into God's immediate presence without facing death. Such is the holiness of God and the sinfulness of mankind. But when Jesus died on the cross, the way into God's presence was opened up to all who trust him as saviour. 
having their sins washed away by his shed blood and being clothed in a righteousness from God. And such direct access to God for all who believe was visibly demonstrated by the enormous curtain that separated off the most holy place in the temple being ripped in two from top to bottom at the moment of Jesus' death. And then two days later, Jesus bodily arose from the dead and returned to heaven, where today he is our high priest our mediator, our intercessor before God the Father. And therefore, the writer to the Hebrews can confidently say in chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But why does the writer describe Jesus as high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek instead of high priest forever in the order of Aaron? the first Jewish high priest, or high priest forever in the order of the Levites, the tribe from which all the Jewish priests came. And this is the question that the writer answers in chapter 7. And he does it by making three comparisons. Firstly, the comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus in verses 1 to 3 Secondly, the comparison between Melchizedek and the Jewish priests in verses 4 to 10. And then thirdly, the comparison between the Jewish priests and the Lord Jesus in verses 11 to 25. Now I will say that Aaron is going to cover verses 11 to 25 next week. So I'm going to steer well clear of those verses and just focus on the first ten verses this morning. Firstly, the comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek. The story of Melchizedek is found in Genesis 14. Abraham was led by the Lord to travel hundreds of miles from his home country to the land of Canaan, accompanied by Lot his nephew. And then the first recorded war between nations broke out. A coalition of four kings attacked and overcame five other kings, including the king of Sodom, where Lot lived. And he was carted off into exile. Now, Uncle Abraham couldn't abandon his nephew. And so with just 318 men, he pursued Lot's captors, routed them, rescued the prisoners, and recovered their stolen possessions. And then we read in Genesis chapter 14 and verses 18 to 20 that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, 
And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And then we fast forward 2,000 years, and the writer to the Hebrews points out several similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus. Firstly, there's the similarity of their roles. We read there in verse 1 that Melchizedek was both king and priest. This Melchizedek was a king of Salem and priest of God Most High. Now the priest represented the people before God as mediator, especially in offering sacrifices for their sins. Whereas the king ruled over the people for God. And the two roles were never normally combined. In Israel, no king could be priest and no priest could be king. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, when King Uzziah tried to offer incense to the Lord by entering the temple where only the priests were permitted, God judged him by afflicting him with leprosy. And we note that Melchizedek was not a pagan priest, but was described as the priest of God most high, to whom he credited Abraham's victory. His ministry was a genuine one. Somehow he knew the one true God and served him as priest, priest most high, as well as being king of Salem. But there is another person who is both king and priest. And that is the Lord Jesus. Remember the message of the angel Gabriel to Mary about Jesus in Luke chapter 1 and verses 32 and 33. The angel said that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. There's a prophecy that Jesus will forever be king over his people. And then remembering the priest's function to represent the people before God as a mediator reminds us of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. We read there, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. We can come to God the Father through his son Jesus because of his once for all sacrifice for our sins. He's both king and priest for his people. The similar similarity of their roles. Secondly, the similarity of their names in verse 2. We read there that uh, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. And you know that these are also names used of the Lord Jesus. 
Let me read to you Isaiah uh, chapter 9 and verse 6. They'll be very familiar words to you. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then just turn on uh, a little way to Jeremiah chapter 23 and verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Saviour. And in the English Standard Version, Jesus' name is simply given as, the Lord is our righteousness. There's the similarity of their names. And then thirdly, there's the similarity of their timeless office. Back in chapter 7, I'll read verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Let's be clear, Melchizedek was not an angel or some superhuman creature or even a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of the Lord himself. Whilst the writer describes Melchizedek as resembling the Son of God, he wasn't the Son of God. He was an ordinary man, an ordinary king, and an ordinary priest in an ordinary city. And so he must have had a father and a mother. But there is no record of his family tree in the Old Testament. And that's unusual because most significant persons in the Old Testament have their ancestry identified. And it was especially important that the Jewish priests be able to prove that they belonged to the tribe of Levi in order to serve. If they couldn't provide that evidence, then they couldn't be a priest. But in the case of Melchizedek, as far as the official record is concerned, he wasn't born, nor did he die. And yet he's still called a priest. Since there is no official account of Melchizedek's death, it appears that Melchizedek remains a priest forever. And this is another way in which he is seen to resemble the eternal Son of God, who really is priest and king forever. Now, theologians call Melchizedek a type of Christ. And in biblical studies, a type refers to an Old Testament person, practice or ceremony that has a counterpart in the New Testament called the antitype. An Old Testament type, though it is real and historical, is nevertheless imperfect 
and temporary. But its New Testament antitype is perfect and eternal. And so a type pictures or prefigures a far superior, much better antitype. And Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Certain aspects of his life and ministry prefigure, picture the far superior person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Melchizedek was a righteous and peaceful priest and king. But Jesus alone is our perfectly righteous priest and king. The one who was without sin. The one who alone can bring true peace to this violent, sin-filled world. And of prime importance, the one who can bring an individual to peace with God. Melchizedek's ministry is considered timeless in a sense because there's no record of his ancestry, his birth or his death. But the ministry and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ is truly eternal. As the voices in heaven proclaim in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Secondly, from verses 4 to 10, there's the comparison between Melchizedek and the Jewish priests. And the writer's point here is that the ministry of the priest Melchizedek is superior to that of Aaron and the tribes of Levi. And he makes two main points to demonstrate this. Firstly, superiority expressed in Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek. Look at verse 4 of our text. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, Scripture describes Abraham, who was the founding father of Israel, as a great man and a friend of God. Someone considered righteous because of his faith demonstrated in his obedience. And yet, great though Abraham was, a man greatly revered by the Jewish people, Scripture shows that Melchizedek was even greater because the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of his war booty. And this argument follows a simple ancient logic. Greater beings receive donations from lesser beings. And therefore, since Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham, Melchizedek is considered greater even than Abraham. But that's not all, for we go on in verse 5 and into verse 6. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who, became, who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi 
yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. When the promised land was conquered, it was split between 11 of the 12 Israelite tribes. The 12th tribe, the Levites, were to provide priests for the people and workers for the temple and weren't given any land. Instead, they were to concentrate on their priestly duties whilst all the other tribes were required by the Old Testament law to give them a tenth, a tithe of what they produced, as their way of giving to God and providing for the needs of the priests and their families. But whilst Abraham's descendants were required to give a tenth to their relatives, the Levites, Abraham voluntarily gave a tenth of his booty to Melchizedek, someone who wasn't even a member of the Levite tribe. Superiority is expressed in Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek, but secondly, superiority is expressed in Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham. Look at the end of verse 6. And blessed him who had the promises, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham who had the promises, and without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, the idea of blessing is the pronouncement of good upon someone and is the opposite of a curse. For instance, it was common practice in biblical times for a father to bless his eldest son with the promise of his inheritance before he died. And similarly, ancient custom dictated that the blesser is superior to the one being blessed. Therefore, in pronouncing a blessing on Abraham, the Bible again shows that Melchizedek is superior even though God's promise of his special people was through Abraham. And we're reminded in verse 8 of our text that the Jewish Old Testament tithes were being paid to priests who die. But Abraham paid a tithe to a priest who is declared to be living. Since there's no official record of Melchizedek's death, he is considered, in a sense, to be a priest forever. And now we need to understand how important this was to first century Christian Jewish readers. You see, many of them were facing increasing pressure and opposition for their faith. Doubts were creeping in. And they were being tempted to abandon their faith in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus for their sins and return to the old ways of relying on the Old Testament law with its repeated sacrifices by the Levite priests which can never take away sins. And what the writer is saying here is, look, the priesthood to which you have come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is far superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites because the priesthood of Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek was even greater than your highly revered forefather Abraham. Because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, the lesser to the greater, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the greater to the lesser. And if that's the case then, why go back to what is described in verse 18 of Hebrews 7 as weak and useless by comparison? For the old regulations contained in the law cannot wash away sins, cannot make anyone righteous before God, cannot bring peace with God, and cannot bring us near to him. And then as a sort of postscript to this section, the writer goes one step further in verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. And what the writer means there is that, in a manner of speaking, although Levi and his priestly descendants weren't alive at the time that Abraham gave a tenth of his booty to Melchizedek, nevertheless, Abraham's seed from which they came from was in the body, in the loins of their ancestor when he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And therefore, the Levites, as Abraham's direct descendants, can in one sense also be reckoned to have participated in the act of giving a tithe to Melchizedek. Yet another pointer to the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood over the Levite priesthood. In referring to Jesus as being in the order of Melchizedek, the writer was reminding his Jewish readers of the absolute superiority of Jesus over the Old Testament priesthood. Because his priesthood was patterned after Melchizedek and not after Aaron and the Levites. Being both king and priest, a man of righteousness and peace, one who continues forever. Now, I don't suppose many of us have a Jewish religious upbringing and background, but the question we must ask ourselves is this. Who or what am I trusting in for my salvation this morning? What sacrifices are we relying upon that we hope will make us acceptable to God and gain entrance into heaven? Maybe some might think that, well, by sacrificing their Sunday morning lion or their round of golf and coming to church instead will make us acceptable to God. Or some might say, well, I, I've sacrificed a, a more expensive holiday in order to put some money in the church offering. Uh, I'm sure that will help. 
Or some might say, well, uh, I, I live a good moral life, and I'm, I'm sure that will accrue more brownie points uh, in God's view of me. But the truth is that these things can never make us right before a perfectly holy God. Whatever sacrifice we might think we're making for him. You see, God demands perfection in order for us to be able to come into his presence. Our problem is one that is internal. It's a problem of the heart. For the reality is that we're sinful to the core of our inner being. And merely doing certain external deeds, giving our own little sacrifices to try and make us acceptable to God, will never be sufficient. But Jesus, our perfect high priest, bore the punishment we deserve for our sins, shedding his own blood so that our sins may be completely washed away when we turn to him from sin in faith. And as we do so, we're clothed in a righteousness from himself. As it says in John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The punishment for our sin has been fully paid for and no other sacrifices for sin can ever be offered. The believer in Christ is saved for all eternity. And God will never declare, well, uh, I, I'm now changing the rules for entry into my kingdom. You, you have to do this or you have to do that. The truth is that Christ has forever done it all. Perhaps you are a Christian and you're struggling with doubts, even despair concerning your faith in Jesus Christ. But if we are tempted to give up and walk away, let's remember all that Christ has already accomplished for us. Satan, whose name means accuser, is accusing us, pointing out our sins and weaknesses before God. But his accusations fall on deaf ears in heaven because Jesus' finished work has paid our sin debt in full and therefore God sees in his children the perfect righteousness of his son. And therefore we needn't carry around the burden and guilt of past sin that we cannot bear. Instead we must give it to Jesus and rejoice that he is right now in heaven representing us before God the Father as our perfect high priest our mediator, our intercessor. John MacArthur imagines the scene like this. Whenever we sin, he, that's Jesus, says to the Father, put that on my account. My sacrifice has already paid for it. And we can come into our heavenly Father's presence at any time through his Son, who is our saviour, our brother 
our friend, our king, our high priest, knowing that he will never reject us or abandon us. In Jesus, we have a far better priest, patterned on Melchizedek, a priest forever, not on the Levites who died and on the regulations they had to keep meticulously day after day, but we've been set free from that. We've been set free so that we can love him and follow him and serve him, the one who is our glorious, eternal Lord and Saviour. Shall we close?